Well, this morning, um, we're continuing with our theme of Ephesians. We've been working through it over the last little while. We're up to Ephesians 6, second part of Ephesians 6. And uh, there's a phenomenal flow throughout the book. It's uh, one of the, one of the, the hard things when you when you sort of break up scripture is you you, you sort of comp- you can tend to comp- compartmentalize the word of God and you've sort of forgotten what we heard last week and the week before and the week before. But there is a there is a theme which runs all the way through the book of Ephesians. And when we get to the passage we're looking at now, which is all about the armor of God and spiritual warfare, I don't want you to forget what's gone before, because. You forget what's, what's gone before, then really the context of what we're reading today, I don't know, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. Um, to date, we've looked at what it is to be in Christ. Uh, we looked at unity in Christ. We looked at the indwelling Christ. Um, order within the family, how husbands should re- uh, respond to wives, how wives should respond to husbands, how children should respond to their parents. Um, and if we haven't dealt with those things, and we come onto the armor of God, and we come onto spiritual warfare, I don't know. I mean, the devil's already won, doesn't he? If, if, there's, if there's enmity between you and your wife, or your, you and your husband, or the, the children are in uproar, and there's no respect there. Um, if you've got a, a boss who's an ogre, and you don't know how to respond to that, and he's treating you like a slave. I mean, really, the, uh, the armor of God is... And this passage is a continuation of everything which has gone before. And um, it's actually interesting that uh, every aspect of the armor of God is actually Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We think that uh, we're going to go into battle and uh, there's something other which is going to protect us. Uh, we are, we're sorely misled. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Jesus. Every aspect of the armor of God is Jesus. Um, so let's have a little look at this passage. It's Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the redness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up your shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And we started there with finally be strong in the Lord. And what a phenomenal start to looking at the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Finally be strong in the Lord. And that goes for everything which has gone before in Ephesians about what it is to be in Christ. That's being strong in the Lord. What it is to have healthy relationships in the home. That's not divorced from being strong in the Lord. This is partly a summary, but also partly a lead on to what's to come. Strengthen the Lord is the foundation for everything and in his mighty power, and put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It's, it talks there about our struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Some of those have been mentioned earlier on in Ephesians. It, it talks about the manifold wisdom of God has been revealed through the church, 
to the principalities and powers of this age. So there's a, there's a follow-on from what, what's already gone before. And in that passage, you almost get the impression that the church is there and the wisdom of God is displayed through the church in many different directions, almost to bring an education to these principalities and powers. And there are biblical principalities and powers, uh, which we'll, we'll come on to that a little bit later. I'll identify some of them and uh, how they operate. They will have different modus operandums and different ways of wickedness in which to enslave and to ensnare. And it's good to identify some of those. We'll have a look at that a little bit later. Um, yeah, but, um, but the armor of God is, is our defense against all of these ensnarements, all of these entrapments, all of these cultures which would try and rob us and make us less than who we're meant to be. As I was preparing, I was also struck that, you know, not everything bad that happens is the battle. Some of it's the cross, <laughs> you know? And we need to understand the difference. We need to understand what, uh, what, what, the, what the difference is between the two. Um, the, the battle, is, that comes from the enemy, that comes from the devil. And it's, uh, it's designed to destroy, to make you live less than you, you're intended to live. It's to diminish you, to make you smaller. The cross is not, doesn't come from the devil. The cross comes from God. God sends the cross on our lives to kill us. Sometimes it's hard to see the good news in that, isn't it? <laughs> the, devil, the devil's out to destroy, and God's out to kill us. True, though. I mean, I, it doesn't make it any easier if I say it with a smile on my face, but it's true. No? Two most powerful beings in the world. One wants to destroy us, one wants to kill us. But there is good news there, because you can't live two lives. I can only live one life either the old life or another life which Jesus wants to give me. You have to make way for one. You have to lay down one to make way for the other. So when we, he who loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will receive my life. And the life that Jesus has got for us is the life of abundance. We have to lay down the old life. And that's not pleasant. And that takes death. And, uh, and that comes from God. So it's, uh, the Bible tells us we're to pick up our cross and follow him. So the battle against the devil, that's something we're to stand firm in. The cross is something we're to take up in grace. And, uh, yeah, sometimes it's not clear which is uh, which. Is which. It's, uh, they, they can sort of both come on us with great power, great strength, and, and we're, we're caught up in the, in the tumble dryer of all of that, you know. And, uh, uh, but uh, there is something of, of just perceiving what God is doing and uh, what we need to give ourselves to in regards to, uh, to the cross and die to, and, uh, and also when we need to just absolutely just stand firm and take our stand against the devil's schemes. This week I had uh, a few things happen to me, and I thought, wow, here I am preparing on the armor of God and spiritual warfare, and uh, these things come upon me. Three things. One was I got a speeding fine, um, 30, 37 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour limit, and uh, second thing, last night Samuel was screaming at four in the morning. I haven't seen him like that for a long, long time. Really distressed. Had a hard, hard night. And, um, and then when we woke up this morning, our Wi-Fi was down on the internet. Now I could say, oh, that's the battle. That's the devil's attack. Well, actually, no. Speeding fine. That's, uh, that's the cross coming to bear on my life. <laughs> God's uh, teaching me how to have attitudes towards selfish driving attitudes. Samuel's screaming, that's the mixture of both. Samuel 
Samuel's got some think, big things regarding autism to overcome, and that's something we're battling through. Um, and we, I don't want to see the devil robbing them and, and having to live a life less than God's intended for him. But at the same time, the cross has come to bear on my life and regarding my selfish attitude towards sleep. <laughs> Sometimes both are in operation. And when the internet came, uh, the Wi-Fi came down this morning, well, we just changed from Big T to Virgin. And we got a cheaper deal and we basically get what we pay for. <laughs> That's life. You know? Not everything is the battle. Some is a cross, some is just life. But you know, we need to discern what's what. We need to see what's what. And I pray that the cross will teach me the lessons I need to learn. Amen. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Two things I want to bring out there on our struggle. Number one, our corporate thing. No one man is in this battle alone. And second, struggle, singular. One struggle, one battle. It's, uh, it's been raging for generations. We're all part of the same battle. Every generation that's gone before us, a Christian has gone through the same battle. They've, they've, they've been on the same battlefield. And it's a battle for the kingdom of God. And, uh, and that's where we take our stand against the, the enemy's schemes, the devil's schemes. It's one battle, and we're not separated uh, from those that have gone before. We're not separated from other brothers in, in Christ who are with us. It's one battle, and, uh, and we're fighting this battle. It's part of a bigger war, and uh, Jesus has done, he's fought another battle. And that battle that Jesus fought has won the victory for the entire war, and uh, we're fighting from a place of victory. Our victory is secure, but we need to stand in our battle. This is our battle. This is our watch. This is our stand. We take our stand against the devil's schemes. Okay. Have you my notes? I've gone all over the place here. Never mind. I'll just use that one. We don't wage war as the world does. Let's have a look at um, 2 Corinthians 10. And it's, a, it's actually a poignant time to give a message like this with everything which is happening in Libya and the warplanes uh, going over overhead and all the battles that have, are being fought in the world at the moment. Um, but our battle is a very different battle, the battle that the world, uh, the world wages. One Corinthians, two Corinthians, two Corinthians 10. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expected it to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So we have a very different sort of battle which we're fighting. It's not like the world fights. And, um, and we've already read that our battle's not against flesh and blood. Even if the person who's being used by the enemy in any one circumstance which is trying to make you live a life less than God has got for you to live. That person is not your enemy. The thing which is motivating him is your enemy. 
And, um, and we need to get beyond the person. We need to get beyond the flesh and the blood. And we need to see just what's at work. And, uh, and sometimes it's, well, it's, it's always hard. It's never not hard. But it's imperative. If we're going to have any victory, if we're going to be able to stand firm, we need to get past the flesh and the blood. The flesh and the blood, it's not that it's a distraction, but it's, it's, not, it's not the battle. The battle's beyond that. The battle is something else. It's attitudes, it's thoughts. Here we take captive vain imaginations, vain thoughts, self-centered thoughts that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We have to bring these things tumbling down. That's where the battle lies. Um, some of the armor of God, which we are, uh, the aspects of the armor of God, and I said earlier that, that for each one of them, or virtually all of them, are, are Jesus. And uh, I think it'd be good to go through just what they are and just to see how they, how they operate. Um, let's get back to Ephesians 6. Starting from verse 14. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. And we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. It's Jesus that we put around our waist. And uh, earlier on, when we, uh, a few weeks back, we were looking at what it is to be in Christ. And uh, I brought the image of uh, Ezekiel being led through the different depths of water in the river of God. And as soon as he put his ankle de- ankles in, his, he's up to the ankle depths in the river. He's in the river. He's in Christ. He may not be fully immersed, but he's in Christ. God led, led, led him deeper. And you remember how the water came up and there was a critical point between here and here where you uh, suddenly everything which registers temperature in your body is heightened. And uh, the, the Bible says to gird up your loins with truth. This is the belt which we have. And it has to, has to cover our sexuality. It has to cover our, um, all the things which, uh, which, can, which are wonderfully covenantal in marriage but also and powerful in, in, uh, in uniting a family and uniting a husband and wife, but are also potentially, if abused, extremely destructive. We need to gird up truth around our loins. And, and it's not about believing the right things. It's about being true, being true to who God's made you to be, being the person that Jesus has established you to be. And that's what girding up your loins with truth is about. It's not a, it's not a cerebral thing, but it's about being true to the heavenly nature and the heavenly calling in Christ. So gird up your loins with truth. Put on the belt of truth. It's a protection for you. The urges may be there, and uh, we all have different, different tendencies uh, and, uh, and different struggles, but, um, but Jesus is our protection in that area. We gird, up, we gird up ourselves with truth in that way, and it's a belt around our waist, and it keeps us strong. It protects us in those areas. Then put on the breastplate of righteousness in place. I don't know if you've seen those Roman breastplates. Uh, they're quite impressive things. Often it's like a brassy colour. And they all seem to have huge pecs and six packs. Have you seen those breastplates, those Roman breastplates? It's like He-Man coming out there. And I've often wondered, yeah, I've, I, you only see the armour in the museum, but uh, I've often wondered, you know, is there, is there a little scrawny man behind this great big armour? You know, and... Uh, here we are, we go out sort of, in the armor of God with a breastplate of righteousness, but inside we've got a <laughs> slightly different physique. There's, there's a truth to that. In our, in our righteousness, sometimes we don't feel like we're absolutely there with God. Maybe we've had an argument with our wife. Maybe uh, uh, we've, we've reacted in a bad way to our children, and uh, we feel there's something deficient in our righteousness. 
And there is, a, there is a truth to our humanity that we're not there yet. We're a work in progress. Each one of us is. You know, we don't perfectly fit the armor of God. It's, uh, you've got the breastplate of righteousness, which is Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. But we are this little twig inside this great armor. And uh, one of the things which I've struggled with, I don't, I don't believe Christianity is a virtual reality. I don't believe that that it's, uh, it's, it, it's got a semblance of truth, but isn't true. But there is, a, there is a sense in which we are growing into the image of God. And even though at the moment we don't f- perfectly fit and, uh, and our pecs don't match the pecs of Jesus and our six-pack isn't the six-pack of Jesus, you know what I mean? There's a discrepancy between the righteousness of Christ, which is very much ours, but the truth of our life. We're growing in that, and God is filling us out. He's fleshing us out. And we're going to fill that armor one day, we may not fill it in this lifetime, but we're, we're moving in that direction. And there's one, one scripture which has absolutely captivated me over the last month or so. And I've, as I've been meditating on it, I've seen it from different perspectives. And, and in preparing this on the armor of God, I've seen it in another perspe- perspective still. And it's, it's, it's the scripture where it talks about when Christ appears, we're also going to appear with him in glory. And, um, and I think there's going to be like an unveiling of... Christians on that day when we go to be with Jesus, we're going to appear with him in glory. Something about our appearing, because up to now, we're covered by the armor of Christ. We need it. We're in a war zone. We're in a battlefield. We need, we need this covering of Jesus. But on that day, the Bible says that a few things happen on that day. One, we get, when he appears, we're going to be, appear with him in glory. The Bible also says about that day, uh, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, um, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. So whatever failings, whatever of our humanity which is deficient, which is fallen, which is of a, 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 of a corrupted nature, none of that's going to be there on that day. And, uh, and the armor's going to come off. It's not that we don't need Jesus, but we don't need Jesus as our armor. We need him as our groom. We don't need him as our armor. There's no, in, when we get, get to heaven, there's no sin, there's no sickness, there's no tears. Well, there'll be tears in the day because he's, the Bible says he's going to wash, wipe every tear from our eye, but there'll be no progressive tears into that, into eternity. I think there's going to be a whole lot of regrets about a, a life less than the life that God has lived. And I think that's going to be part of the wiping of the tears from our eye on that day. Into heaven, there's going to be no tears. There's going to be no battle there. We don't need Jesus as an armor. We, we still need Jesus. And we're still going to love Jesus. We're going to be with Jesus. But it's a very different sort of relationship. Um, so there's, um, there is something of, of the righteousness which is being worked out behind this protection of Jesus, uh, behind this, this breastplate of righteousness, until we are fully righteous through his throne. And uh, it's going to be unhindered communion, nothing to, to mar that whatsoever. I'm looking forward to that day. Do I believe in sinless perfectionism when we get to heaven? Yes. Until then, work in progress. <laughs> but um, yeah, there is a day where everything is going to be made perfect. What comes after the breastplate of righteousness? Feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Yeah. I mean, isn't Jesus our example in that? Did he hold back in anything regarding the gospel? No, he gave himself completely. He is, uh, he is that perfect analogy of what it is to be ready for the gospel of peace. And it's interesting here, um, of all the, the, the adjectives the Bible could have used for gospel, you could, it could have been the gospel of victory, that would be more fitting with a battle scenario, or the gospel of triumph, or the, the, 
gospel of, you know, it says gospel of peace, and it's kind of interesting that you've got peace and war in the same context. And uh, there is something of um, the way that we wage war is with opposites. So when the devil comes at, comes at us with enmity, or when, through a brother or through, a, through another human being, the way we defeat them is with love. We come against it in the opposite spirit. Um, we're going to look at some of those things a little bit later as well, um, what it is to, um, to move in the opposite spirit to the prevailing spirit that's attacking us. Um, you know, when someone comes and hits you on the cheek, the Bible says, put me on the cheek. It's, it's, it's addressing things in the opposite spirit, and that's how the enemy is defeated. But if, you're, if your eye is on the flesh and blood, you'll want to hit them back. <laughs> Can't do that. <laughs> that's not the way. That's not God's way. Um, um, when, it was, when these things were taught to me the first time round about um, coming against things in the opposite spirit, it was always taught in, as a principle, principles of spiritual warfare. And um, I don't know, I'm a little bit uneasy with that. I think it's got merits, and it does have merits in the scripture. But I, w- I just encourage you not to take it as a principle, not to live a principled life in that regard. Because you can follow all the principles, and, uh, and there's no relationship in that. You can be a man of principle. Live your life by principle. And it sounds so noble, but, um, but the way to live is not by principle. It's by the Spirit. And the Spirit will take these attitudes. These are attitudes which God wants us to have, which he wants to instill in us. Not principles. We don't live by these principles because that's a form of legalism. So in just you're thinking about these things, see them as attitudes that God would have, uh, have instilled in you and work into your life regarding um, how to address onslaughts as they come upon us. Something of the, yeah, so the gospel of peace just highlights a little bit of that. In this war situation, it's a gospel of peace. Um, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can ex- extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And in Psalms, it also says his faithfulness is a shield about you. There's something of Jesus being our shield. And uh, everything which Jesus has said, I mean, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So everything which Jesus has said, we can extend through faith, and extinguish those lies of the enemy, those fiery darts which will want to just consume us with, with flame. And then verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Um, and I think part of the work which God has been doing in this church over the last little while, rooting us in a deeper theology of the sovereignty of God and what it is to um, have assurance of our salvation, he's, he's just fitting that helmet on our head. He's fitting a helmet on our head, which is going to protect us. That there isn't a, like a little, a little crack with which the, the enemy can get in there. Are you really saved? You know, attack our mind, attack our thinking, and, and bring us down. Um, the full assurance of salvation is, uh, yeah, it's it's God preparing that helmet for us. I used to love looking at uh, images of armor as a child, and I remember looking at a Greek helmet the ancient Greek helmet and the Roman helmet and seeing how they developed because the, the Romans took everything which the Greeks had done and sort of improved upon it. And that's how they sort of took the civilization on a, a step forward. And the Greek helmet, there were a lot of exposed areas. But then the Roman helmet, they brought in these like shield guards and there was, um, there was more protection. And I think that's something what God's doing here with us, with the church. He's, uh, we know Jesus has saved us. But now he's making us sure that we know that we know that he saved us. And there's nothing in heaven and on earth, no height nor depth or anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God. 
not even you, <laughs> you bore the price, and uh, nothing's going to take you away from Jesus. And that assurance of salvation is uh, is just the, the perfect feeling of this helmet on our head. And uh, and if that's not complete in your life, I pray that God would complete that in your life. That that there be that absolute assurance, that absolute certainty that nothing is going to going to take that away from you, that, yeah, I'm saved today and I will be saved tomorrow and the day after and every day after that comes and into eternity too. Because that's what God has got for us. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's interesting, everything else has been defensive. Every other aspect of the armor of God has been defensive. But now we come on to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And... Um, one of the things, again, which God is doing here in this church, he's, uh, he's shown us the need for a word and a spirit. The word of God isn't enough. The spirit of God isn't enough. But the two together are powerful. And, uh, and the, sword, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And uh, there is something about having a wealth of word in you, studying God's word, being diligent in, in your readings and, and just getting as much of this written on your heart as possible. But then there is also the aspect of hearing God. And uh, if you're going to be effective with a sword when the, when the onslaught comes, you need to both have a sword, which is the word of God, but you also need the spirit so you can wield it right. It's, not, it's more than just about swordsmanship. It's more than just about eloquence and persuasiveness. If all that you've got is a persuasive attitude and, a, and the word of God, you're not hearing the spirit as he's directing you how to fight, how to wage war then really you're not going to be as effective as, uh, as, as God has intended for you to be. There's a whole lot more effectiveness, but it comes out of hearing God's voice and God being able to, and the Spirit is not actually your sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Spirit's sword being worked out through you. The Spirit needs to be able to take the word which he's placed in you and use that to argument. So that's, that's why I was so thrilled. Every, every service I come here, I'm thrilled when people stand up and bring words. Because for me, it's evidence of people hearing God's voice and sharing it. And that's powerful. And uh, I don't want you to ever underestimate the power of, of, of hearing God's voice and putting it into action and, and delivering it. Because these are the things which, uh, which bring down strongholds. These are the things which set people free. And, uh, and it's for all of us. It's not just for the ministers, whoever they are. <laughs> all of us. We're all ministers of Christ. Okay. Yeah, I... I want to just briefly also just touch upon the principalities and powers of this dark age. And um, I said earlier, there are biblical principalities. Uh, the Bible talks about these principalities and these princes. And often you, when you read through Scripture, through the Old Testament, you'll, you'll come across a historical figure. And uh, you're reading about it, and, and, and it seems all very historical, and it makes sense that this is all referring to this person. Then, then the Bible says something, which you think, hang on a minute, that's not a description of that person anymore. And you realize that that person's life is actually a description of something in the heavenlies. And uh, I'll, I'll give you some examples of those. One is the king of Tyre. You'll see him in Ezekiel. Uh, there's three chapters of Ezekiel devoted to him. The first one is the story of the man. And then it goes into, it says some other things about him. You think, hang on a minute, that's no longer talking about this historical king who, who ruled in this little city called Tyre. It talks about how... Um, how he was a guardian cherub, and he had this breastplate, and he was there in the Garden of Eden. You think, well, there's no way the king of Tyre was in the Garden of Eden. This is way before his time. 
you know, in fact, it's, it's true of, and you realize, well, actually, the king of Tyre is a picture of this principality. And the way, that, the, way the king of Tyre, the, the principality of Tyre operates is through unrighteous trade. And uh, I just want to briefly sketch out four of these principalities. The king of Tyre is one. And so he enslaved nations and peoples through trade and, uh, and through deceit. Another one is the whore of Babylon. And we know that Israel was taken into Babylon. In Revelation, it talks about the whore of Babylon and how uh, the things which, which mark her out and her modus operandi is through um, drunkenness and sexual immorality and, she, and, and violence. And she absolutely ensnares um, the people in her captivity through that. And um, then there's the, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Um, in Daniel, you read about these two historical figures. Again, the prince of Greece is Alexander the Great. The prince of Persia is Darius. And they're, they're at war against each other. And it all looks like a historical narrative. But then you, you read about the archangel Michael was held up by these battles. And you realize that actually there's a, there's a spiritual dimension to these guys as well. There's a principality which has been described through these stories. And the thing which marks out the, the Prince of Greece is that the worship of man. Alexander the Great was this great hero, and he went out to conquer the world. And he, uh, uh, it was all about the, evala- uh, the elevation of man and the worship of man, the adoration of man. And you look at the Greek mythology, and it's kind of hard to see who are the gods and who are the heroes, and the gods interact with the heroes. And in, this, in their religious thought, it's, there's all this mixture. It's the elevation of man and... Uh, uh, and the, and the beautification of the body as well. They, they worship the body of man, the, the physique. Physique was a huge thing in Greek culture about being strong and being the hero. And then you've got the, the other principality which is fighting against is the prince of Persia. And Persia is an interesting one. It's kind of a benign principality. You look at, uh, you look at the interaction between the people of God and Persia, and Persia is almost like rolling out the red carpet. Hey, go and rebuild your city. Go and rebuild the temple. And it's almost like a benign principality. But in there is intimidation. Go and rebuild. But we're watching you. You know? It's, it's, they were pan, pantheistic. They had a, a whole lot of um, religions. And uh, everything was accepted. It was all about tolerance. Is that ringing, ringing any bells? You know? Yeah, you can be a Christian, but just, you know, don't, you know, just remember that other people that think differently, you know, just, just easy does it. But yeah, you can be a Christian. Yeah, we'll let you build your churches. We'll let you worship on a Sunday, but, uh, but don't speak out about this or that or the other because that's infringing on someone else's rights. You know? It's the, it's the, it's the Prince of Persia. It's a benign principality. And uh, it's subtle as well, and it, it's insidious. You think, how, how do we get into this captivity, this... How does this come upon us? And, and for, for the children of Israel, they were never taken captive by Persia. They were taken captive by Babylon. Um, and then they found themselves, things politically changed, and they found themselves under the dominion of the Persians. Uh, uh, but it was like, how did we get here? And sometimes we don't even see the attack with the prince of Persia, but it's there, and it's, it's subtle, and it would intimidate you, and it would, say you, it would, it would try and persuade you to be less than you're meant to be. But very pleasantly, very nicely, you know, in a very democratic kind of way, you know. But these are principalities which are at work, and they, they affect the world. They affect every culture to different degrees. And um, and some of them, the church has recognised and has taken on, like we've, as a church, broadly 
throughout history, we've recognized the destruction, uh, the destructive power of the principality of the whore of Babylon. And we've taken a stand against sexual immorality, against drunkenness, addiction. We've done quite well as a church against that principality throughout history. Other principalities, we haven't even seen it as our mandate. The, the king of Tyre, unrighteous trade. Church has never really got involved in trade. Any thoughts about trade? You know, that trade is not sort of a, that's kind of a secular thing, isn't it? That's not something for the church. But uh, if we're going to take captive, uh, if we're going to set the captives free, the Bible says you have to go to the strong man's house and first bind up the strong man before he can take his captives free. And there is something about us engaging on the, on the battlefield of, uh, of unrighteous trade, bringing righteousness to bear upon those things into those areas, which is, uh, which is going to bring victory. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a whole uncharted territory. There are little bits like Tear Fund and some of the other companies are out there doing something. And, and as a church, we've done a little bit into Kyrgyzstan, um, looking to use our wealth to, through, through businesses to, to bring some sort of relief to unemployment in Kyrgyzstan and, and the guys who are, who are going through rehab. But really, there's a whole area for us to explore in the whole, in the, within the, the realm of unrighteous trade. And there are other principalities who we just welcomed right on into the church and said, hey, come on in. Prince of Greece. You look at uh, Christian media, and it is full of this great hero of the faith who will come and do a conference for you if you give him so many dollars or whatever. This great man who is... Uh, He's the answer to, to all your needs. This great figure who will preach his socks off and do whatever these great figures do. I don't know what they do. But you know what I mean? It's, it's an elevation of man to a point where you don't even see Jesus. You don't even see Christ on the, on the billboard. You know, where's Jesus in all of this? Really, where's the glory going, eh? And uh, we've welcomed the Prince of Greece right on into the church. And it's all about strong men. No, if only, had, if only we had a strong man at the helm. We could be this great church. But no, it's an army of ordinary people where, where Christ is, uh, is at the helm. Where Jesus is taking ordinary souls and taking weak, feeble twigs who don't fill the armor of God perfectly and fleshing them out, making them strong. And this is what God's about. This is the, this is the battle we're in. Um, and uh, yeah, and God is doing it. But I, I don't want to put this, these things out to you as strategy either. Just I want to put you know if these are, if, if these things are, are, are sending some light bulbs on and, uh, and you're thinking, hey, yeah, maybe God has been speaking to me in this area. Then I'd encourage you to pursue it. But let's not get too strategic when it comes to taking on uh, these principalities. They've been around for a long time. King of Tyre, the Bible says, was in Eden. We're not going to defeat him in a decade. <laughs> We're not going to defeat him in a lifetime. And I think he's going to be there up until the end of the age when Jesus returns. Just in the brightness of his coming, these things are going to dissolve. They're going to be gone. And, uh, and that's, that's something we've got to look forward to. But until that time, we're in this battle. Finally, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God. And having done everything to, everything to stand, stand firm then with, this, with all of this armor on, all of this clothing of Jesus. He is our salvation, he is our righteousness, he is the truth, he is a perfect example of readiness of gospel, he is the word made flesh, the sword of the spirit. Just on that point, I don't know if you thought about it, but the, 
the Jews of old, they had in their scripture everything about Jesus. It was all there, all the prophecies. They had the word of God. They, they had access to Jesus. But it was on paper, it was on a scroll. Something amazing that John said. In the book of John, it says, the word of God came and dwelt among us. And that's the difference. The difference is when Jesus is not no longer on the printed page, but it's on a, written on the fleshy tablet of your heart. And that is Christ incarnate. He came as a man, and that made a whole lot of difference. To him. I mean, history turned on its head when Jesus came, because the word became flesh. And now we are his body, and he wants to do just as much in our flesh, just as much in this flesh and bones as he was in his own body. And he wants, in fact, he said, you're going to do even greater things than I did. You know, how magnanimous is that? This is, uh, this is the kingdom which we are fighting. This is, uh, this is our God who's preparing us to stand. And, and he, will, he will see us through to the end of the age. So I hope that encourages you.